Hey guys, this is Across the Aisle, and today we're going to be talking about generations. So, a few little terms that you may or may not know. So, you have, in order, the Greatest Generation, the Silent Generation, the Baby Boomers, Generation X, and the Millennials. Those are the past five generations. They're every subset of people that we have defined, sociologists have defined, over the past hundred years excluding whatever the current generation is because weirdly we don't know what they're called yet we might not know for another 10 years what we're gonna call them unlike most generations they don't have a name so what i wanted to talk about specifically at least for me is this weird trend i've realized with millennials or at least how media portrays millennials and it's that we, because I'm probably the most millennial millennial in this room, <laughs> everybody else is like on a weird cusp or at a weird time of it. So most people don't even know where millennials start. Technically, millennials start 1980. Exactly. So everybody out there who's in their 30s and saying how much they hate millennials, good, you hate yourself, that's fine. You're allowed to hate yourself. But what you really mean to say is you hate the portrayal of millennials and what you believe millennials are. What sparks my interest in this is realizing how pop culture in today's world is nothing but a bunch of what 15 years ago would be considered niche markets. While Star Wars has always been popular ever since Star Wars came out, I don't know anybody, including myself, who knew about the Guardians of the Galaxy until it came out in, what, 2012, 2013? This, this, guy, this guy came out yeah. a huge comic nerd. Yeah, but, but um, that was a niche. Yeah, it was very, it was very and niche. Now, I mean, like, as far as mainstream comics, Guardians was not something that I would ever think a movie would be made out of, you know? Yeah. So. That's funny, because now people are like, oh, Guardians of the Galaxies, I'm going to see that. I'm like, yeah, I don't really know what that is besides it's a movie. And then they say something like, you don't know Guardians of the Galaxy? Like, but they didn't either. Nobody, they know nobody knew. They're my same age. Uh, oh, yes, but, that's right. We have we have an addition on the podcast for the first time ever. <laughs> yes. So it's it's Zach, Kaysen, Adam, and... Bill. And who are you, Bill? Um, I was born the son of a young Filipino merchant off the moon <laughs> of Sandar 7. No, um, I am in... So for uh, purposes of this specific podcast or whatever, I'm in uh, my... I'm 38, so that makes me Gen, gen X, Gen Y. Uh, I guess they brought that to just Gen X, but, um, and I work locally here in St. Pete. Awesome. He's a very good friend of ours, and we wanted to experiment with doing a, a guest episode, and I thought that he'd fit right in, seeing as, when it comes to what all of us know, Kaysen probably knows the most about comics, Adam probably knows the most about art and philosophy, and I probably, I would say, know the most about, like, video games, I would assume, <laughs> out of all of us, like, all of us... Yeah, you're a tech editor. Right? Yeah, yeah, kind of. I mean, I'm probably the only one here who can say that I've legitimately played through Simon's Quest. I don't even know. Without a walkthrough. <laughs> Castlevania 2 on the NES. Oh, God. No one finished it. it. I'm sorry for all those who don't know what I'm talking about, but Bill is the film expert. I don't know anyone who knows more about film than Bill, at least anyone that I've ever met. I'm pretty sure that you could probably name, if you wanted to, all of the... Best Picture Oscar winners since it started. <laughs> Pretty close. I own the very first one. My choice. I loved it. Anyway, 
Yeah. So, yeah. so we were going to get pop culture and I figured we needed to round pop this out a bit expert. more. <laughs> Fair enough. So what is, what is your take on this idea that when it comes to movies and TV shows and just in general, this idea that Gen X and Millennials are very obsessed with, you know, this nostalgia from their youth, whether it be them trying to recapture that childlike wisdom of opening up a comic book and reading about Spider-Man and then going to see Spider-Man like I did this past weekend even though I wasn't sure if it'd be good or bad because I avoided every single trailer. I just knew it's Spider-Man, I want to see Spider-Man. And even right now, I'm wearing a Captain America t-shirt as, like, part of my personality. Classic Cap. Yeah, because <laughs> it's just kind of part of what pop culture is now. I At least I think that the past two generations have been rather nostalgia-guided, whether it be because of marketing companies telling me that or because that's just kind of what the reality is. Right, uh, because I, that's, that's hard to say because I know a lot of people who prefer to have an actual comic book in hand, um, still buy DVDs, and, and I still buy DVDs, I love that, that maybe that's an nostalgic thing for me, I, I like to know that I own it, that it's mine, I'm not uh, forever renting it off, off Netflix or Amazon or whatever. Maybe um, that's just know. part of you being a Gen X at the... Maybe, because I like to own the thing and say, that's mine, and you can't take it away from me unless some kind of Fahrenheit 451 happens. It's <laughs> mine. Because you grew up in the and, But people are like, you know, I have Netflix, <laughs> I own all the movies. Well, no, you're consistently <laughs> renting them every day, yeah. and you don't have, they don't have the vast amount, all the movies, a lot of the movies I own aren't on Netflix. So, right. you know, but um, on that same page, though, when it comes to graphic novels and things like that, I like to have the technology so I can just have it all in one place. From a co collecting standpoint, I like to... At first, I didn't know if I liked the idea of the whole digital, you know, comic book thing. Nobody but, did. But nobody. But I'm at the point right now where I'm like, I can get a book that I think, and I still buy comic books. I can get a book that I think, you know what? Hey, this is the first appearance of a character I think, thirty years from now, might be really popular. I don't want to even open this. I'm going to keep it in the, the back seat. I can get the digital version and read the comic and never even have to actually have to touch. Yeah. My, so for me, no. that's what I like digital for. Is that specific? Now here's a question. You do that with comic books because you like to own them because uh, they're nostalgia or whatever. But would you do that with DVDs, or is it because you love comic books specifically you'll buy those physically? I think because I love comic books, I'll buy them physically. For for me, I I'm not one of those people. There's a very few movies that I watch over and over and over again. So like, I'll rent it. I don't know what that was. It's <laughs> I will yeah. I will rent um the the movie and then return it because in most cases um. I will watch it once and then probably not ever not look at it again. But then again, there's a couple movies that I have to buy on DVD. Like, you know, um, I actually got the Avengers Blu-ray gotcha. because that was like the, even though like, you know, the original, the movie that actually shot comic book movies to the forefront was actually Blade. Blade was an uh, actual Spider-Man character um, that yeah. came to prominence. Blade was like Blade was probably great one of the first That's big comic book movies that actually started mm -hmm. launching comic book movies. Wasn't um, it? Technically, the first R-rated superhero movie. Was um, it? I think Blade uh, was it R-rated. I'm not sure, but it, it was, was R-rated for sure. There's it? blood. Oh there's yeah. Sex. Well, there's, we're well. Movie. How much sex? Because as long as you <laughs> don't say the phrase, I want to. Yeah. Okay, that's fair enough. Bo boobs and blood. Well, patriarchal society. There's boobs in like everything, but you'll never see it in this. Oh well, <laughs> now, yeah, now you do. No, now you do. Yeah, now in R-rated movies, you see penises quite a bit. Well. One thing well, I like said, keeping your eyes out for Yeah, I can't show a hard penis. That's... Well, one thing I wanted to ask, though, is when it comes to this obsession with physical media, because 
now a weird thing being born when I was is my mom used to have a huge CD collection and a huge vinyl collection because she very much liked movies or uh, like music and movies. So we have like two different drawers, one of which is nothing but kids' movies and one of which is nothing but her movies, like her adult movies and all of that. So what I find to be interesting is, in my opinion, I like physical media and how we have this digital media now and this weird crossroads we're at about what's going to happen with physical media, partially because of one thing, and that's for historical records. So one thing that people always obsess with with physical media is, oh, well, I have it forever. And let me point out where that's false. So Bill probably knows this, but I don't know about either of you. So over the years when it came to The Wizard of Oz, one of the most famous movies ever to exist, I would argue. I, it, I don't know a child in America who hasn't What's at least... About? <laughs> There's this wizard from Oz. But there was... The, the version that you watched as a kid was either what was shown in theaters in the 30s, or it was one of the remastered that added some of the cut scenes. Mm -hmm. There are still... 13 minutes of that film that are lost to time. Wow. They another. lost the film. And even if they <clears> found <throat> it because of 8 millimeters and it probably not being in a very safe temperature controlled room, the film degraded. So even if we found it, if we, if we went to open it, we might destroy it anyway. Wow. But with <clears throat> digital media, you don't have that. It's so very, the latter generation will never know the first one? The film version, is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. In fact, nobody will. Well, it's funny you say that because I was on Amazon, I was looking for original versions of the Star Wars trilogy where... Um, they don't do the digital version. And they don't, they don't sell them anymore. They refuse to let them out. I, they only do the... And then people will say on the comments, this is the original one, it's wonderful, and then people below them will say, they're a younger generation, they don't understand that it's not actually the original Star Wars. I, I will point out that there may or may not be a section of the internet where you could find them with awesome. all of those digital things removed. We'll discuss that later. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm know, just saying they could possibly be the unofficial original trilogy it's, it's album. It's funny because when it came out again in the 90s remastered, well, people just assumed that was the original one when they were younger. To, to tangent for one second, back when there was a hearing on if the Motion Picture Association of America was going to essentially edit all of these old movies that had smoking and um, instances of racial epithets. Because, I mean, if you're going to... People said the N-word in some movies in the yeah. 40s. That was just kind of yeah, like a word that was used sometimes. But in oh, a lot the of 80s... Films yeah. are racist as hell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but in the 80s, George Lucas took the stand and formally said how movies should be preserved in their original intent. They should. I think. George I George Lucas said <laughs> that films should not be edited. That's hilarious. That from their original intent, but to to go back to that, I think that that kind of goes into this weird crossroads that I'm at in my generation. With I really love physical media, but because of the economic standings and just how much space what I want takes up, it's it's technically cheaper and more cost-effective for me to spend $100 on movies that I have on a hard drive that just stays in my room that's just the size of a tiny book 
that I just put up in my corner and keep than it would be to have to get an entire bookshelf to fill up all right. of the movies I would want. I mean, or, uh, honestly, um, there is a suggestion I made when I was doing computer classes is that if you have something that you really, really want to preserve, it's not going to be as nice as you know, like you get a Blu-ray or you can burn Blu-rays yourself. Because Blu-rays, right. I believe, are archival. I think Blu-ray Blu format oh, yeah. will basically last freaking forever. So okay. honestly, um, if you want to get a format, yeah, invest the, in Blu-ray. That, that, that's a big thing. It's just, to me, it seems odd because when you look at movies now, there's a big weird thing where it's like, oh, everything's a sequel or it's connected to some other franchise. And that's true. And, I mean, when you really think about it, sequels have kind of always been around since you could put movies onto film and show them. Like, even very early films had, like, tangential sequels. Even if they were silent, you'd have characters who were the same or actors playing the same characters a hundred times in a different role or whatever. So I'm just not sure if it's a matter of that millennials are trying to recapture the <coughs> sense of youth from looking at the box office anyway and the demographics for who's watching Netflix Daredevil <coughs> and who's out there actually caring about the Spider-Man movie and who's out there who, you know, is going out to buy like the NES classic and the Super Nintendo classic. We're living in this weird world where products are being marketed towards millennials and Gen Xers, at least in, from what I've experienced, more so with this recapture this part of your life gotcha. yeah. than with a, here's this cool, interesting thing. Like, I know way, way more people who know about the NES Classic wanting to, you know, rekindle that memory of beating... Super Mario for the yeah. first time right. than I do people who actually know that there are still people who are making NES games. Yes. There are still yeah. people making Zapper yeah. games and one of my favorite my uh, favorite homebrew games that has come out in the past 15 years is called Super Russian Roulette and it is a <coughs> party game with the NES and the Zapper. <laughs> and it involves you with up to, I want to say it's like seven friends and a cowboy on the TV, and the you have a gun, and you you know you can sit there and you can press a button on the controller on the second controller, and they, they found a way to do this, and they could have done it years ago, but people weren't thinking about that. I think depending on the medium, it's also very insulting to the artist and to the generation, if you will, because like if, if I totally reboot, let's say uh, let's say the newer the, the Christian Bale Batman's weren't rebooted. And then one of us rebooted it today. It'd be a lot later reboot and be like, "Well, it's a reboot, and this, that, and the other is reboot." But it's like a, it's a piece of art that yeah. I created. It's well, my, and you're gonna appreciate it on your own level, separate from from. Uh, well, well, I think movie. with comic books, mm -hmm. to be honest, and I think that with all of the movies that were all the Spider-Man movies that were rebooted, they did different writers' takes on the character. Like, uh, oh, yeah. the Christopher Nolan um, Batmans were more, um, I think, a Miller retake? I'm not... I'm not um, but they've, like... With no, Batman, actually, no, what I say Miller. Yeah, that was... That was... Uh, that was, um, that was Zack Snyder. Zack Snyder's Batman. So, like, the way... There's a different version of the character and the way that you can bring it forth, depending on who was writing it at that certain period of time, would still feel different to someone who's comic book fan. Right. You know, but it doesn't work with all other genres. It's, that is very specific to comic book movies. Um, but interesting about nostalgia, I think that like it's a thing that is is in vogue now. Not just for millennials, because look at Make America Great Again. 
Right. Look at everyone wants right. to recapture part of their yeah. past. My, my good friend Bert went to a the newest Spider-Man <clears> and <throat> the other day dressed as Spider-Man and he's 52. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and that to me is fine. It's just I'm, I'm trying to figure out and struggling to why it is that nostalgia is in fashion right now. And I'm not sure I because think... every generation I think has a different answer to it because when it comes to millennials and Gen Xers who experienced the Reagan years, 9-11, um, the Patriot Act, we now realize how scary the world is. And yeah. some Gen Xers and Gen Y and even millennials didn't really have a childhood <clears throat> without this hyper-focus on politics and war. And yeah, we still had our moments of being kids. I still vividly remember running around with my Game Boy playing Pokemon for hours just mm. like any other kid. But I also remember that Every so often, if I couldn't sleep and I walked downstairs to get a drink of water, my mom was watching the news, I might see something that was kind of scary. I might, you know, hear about someone who got killed or raped or whatever. And yeah. so I don't think that that was something that older generations had to deal with. And to me, I feel like millennials and Gen Xers are trying to rekindle their childhood while um, baby boomers are trying to rekindle their younger adult life and they're like 30s and 40s. As if we're all trying to relive a similar age. And I'm not sure why I think that, but it's just... You mean a similar time frame, not yeah. a similar age. Yeah. I would say it's a similar age because, you know, people like, you know, like Bert, he's talking about his child. Yeah. Oh, and everyone's different because, again, generations are decently arbitrary, but right. they do serve a purpose of understanding why True. groups certain of ages react yeah. certain ways. They aren't perfect, but they so, do yeah. help. I would say that a lot of that nostalgia is a marketing campaign. It's a fake nostalgia. It's and but it plays on a really real psychological need. I think you're right. We all do realize the world's a scary fucking place, and that makes us want safety that we experienced in childhood. But also, I think a lot of it like is this heightening back to society wants to perpetuate this idea that everyone can be a perpetual teenager or young adult where they, well, where they what they emphasize is this, right? yeah and they emphasize this sense of freedom like um an ability and expression and um stuff like that like really being able to be you finally like for the older generations um our older people or like this is it you have arrived and this, like you know all this like world is your oyster shit like this freedom that by the time you're 50, you realize, wait a second, I never had that. Well, how about on the other end of that same spectrum? <laughs> now you can buy it. <laughs> yeah. There is also the, the I'm, dare I say, I know, there's another spectrum, of, on the spectrum where they say, um, I am nostalgic for a better time back in the old days when, da 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 And the people I, I know this who want to live a certain lifestyle, you know, what it was good for the straight white Christian male. Um, they, they're nostalgic not for items, unless it's like a classic car from that era or whatever and I always say well why don't you man up woman up and just become Amish <laughs> because that's true nostalgia <laughs> that's you know, going back so far anyway I'm sorry <laughs> no no that's uh, it's not the money side it's like the I don't know cultural uh, side yeah cultural I, well I don't think they, I don't think you when you experience the nostalgia yourself view it as money but I feel like you know we're marketed to I get yeah. marketed all this. Really yeah, they use psychologists for this. It makes perfect sense, but they prey on it, and then once it's out there and it's 
hitting you, you become more mis- nostalgic. Like, uh, and any generational fall forward equally as... Oh, yeah, I think that any generation, I think that for the most part, you go back, you know, 20, 30 years. That generation was complaining about, like, you know, rock and roll. They, they, right. Every generation kind of has the same, like, line of complaints for the generation that comes after them. You know, like, it's funny because I talked to, like, Sarah, and she's like, you know... Uh, when are you gonna like just start sitting up front of a like you know in front of our porch and yelling get off my lawn? Yeah. Like, just like all oh, these kids that do this thing that's annoying and I'm just like yeah, and you know my my mom complained about that for her generation. So I think that to a certain extent, you're all looking at things that we got to a point where we we're comfortable with the way things were and then they changed and then as they change and things became unfamiliar to you, you're getting frustrated with the unfamiliarity and. It, we all got to understand that things are going to change. You cannot yeah, stop things from changing. Yeah. I hate a lot of the new music that's coming out. I hate a lot of the, you know, yeah. a lot of the things that are coming after me, kind of, and, and you, when you sit and think about it, well, they're not really that bad. You mean, like, the, things got to change, and you got to kind of roll with it, but it's a thing that happens. Yeah, I don't and, think and you can is. find what you are interested in, even if it's a little harder to come by, because yeah. radio's not playing the same, you know, it's going to play the same five songs or whatever. But, um, no, absolutely, I, I agree completely, but I think, I feel right about <laughs> oh, I was going to say, I also thought um, this guy Grafton Tanner did uh, wrote a couple, I think two books about vaporwave specifically. Um, and so it's like this musical but also general art um, style, which often uses heavily sampled items from the late 80s, early 90s um, in a very somewhat glitch and uh, repetitious sort of way. Um, no, they're taking the style, they're taking actual sound bites. Both. Okay. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's orig- completely original compositions that just sound like they're from the 90s, or sometimes it's All like, right. hey, I took this six seconds from this video game you probably played a lot in the arcade, gotcha. and then I added a dance beat behind it. <laughs> um, but anyways, his ideas about it were pretty interesting to me. Um, he talked about nostalgia a lot in it, um, but again, that's like kind of false nostalgia feelings of um, that coming from the future, the being canceled in a way, like, um, you know, like we talk about with the end of history and stuff, what's next? Like, we follow liberalism in like the 90s, you know, the pre-9-11 era, where does it go? You know, it's supposed to deliver us somewhere into this really nice world and stuff, but then 9-11 happens and you have... uh, that crash of the beautiful place coming, and we've experienced this violent, scary fucking world since then. Yeah. Um, and we're... So he, like, likens that back and kind of talks about being unable to imagine more stuff and then just rehashing what was good about yesterday or what we perceive as unique about yesterday, not even necessarily good. Um, but do you think that's a uniquely American issue? I mean, because I think that other countries seems, have already seen uniquely... like we, they know it's scary. And yeah. they're like, oh, you know what? Life is scary, but we've got to move forward from that. And I think that when we hit that point that we realized that life was scary, it was just like, just hold on to the past. As yeah. opposed to moving forward. Into Maybe, the but other countries have alienated youth throughout the ages. Oh, yeah. They have alienated teenagers. They have. There's a culture, uh, more of a, closer to a tribal culture, still alive. I forget exactly where it is. I heard about it in cultural anthropology class in college and they're like during age whatever to whatever when you're a rebellious annoying teenager they send you off so you're going to become a man or a woman you got to live off the land go into the forest and then when the documentary when they went alone with the documentary people the adults like 
no, they're just annoying teenagers. I want to get rid of them for a few years. Like, <laughs> you know, like, they, it's, they have the same thing they have. They have, you know, yeah. it, England gets, like, attacked all the time by terrorists, and they have cameras on, like, every street corner. So do they have nostalgia? I don't know. Well, I think that for, for them, just like I've, I've uh, kind of um, relating to what Adam said about how, you know, we had this bright idea of what the future was going to hold for us. And right. then when we kind of realized that this is a scary fucking place, right. we kind of regressed into holding on to the past as opposed to let's move on to the future. And I think do other countries still have that. They already knew it was scary, so the future is the, is the next step for them. Like, I don't know if that is, like, for example, there's other people in, you know, like, third world countries that look into the future is the only way they can move forward. Right. You know, like, that's the only way. Things have got to get better. There's got to be a tomorrow. So their outlook is a little bit different than ours because we have always in this country had so much. It's mind-blowing to me that we have, like, the threat of, like, a terrorist attack and make us, like, give away our freedom. It's like, just, yeah, take it. I don't care. As opposed to, like, you know, other countries where they actually have actual issues with terrorism and they, like, have, like, bombings and stuff all the time. They're just like, yeah, okay, well, you know, just, you don't die from a bomb today, you freaking do something tomorrow. Like, you know, they're a lot more, like, less Mm panic-induced than we are. And it's, it's just, I don't know, I don't know how to, like, Well, I think part of that just has to do with we're the people who invented the 24-hour news cycle. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's now a global thing. Now every single major news network has a website where they're continually updating and tweeting out sure. every little thing that happens. But we're the ones that kind of got a jump start on that by yeah, a lot. Yeah. And now we have a generation that doesn't know it before Anything it existed. But, yeah, like I have, I have no idea. Like I can remember my mom. I don't think we had CNN in the house until I was like a bit older and it was on like every cable package. Mm-hmm. And before, mm-hmm. wasn't CNN a premium channel? I don't know. I, I can't remember if it was. I just know that it might have been on like a different package or whatever. But if anything, maybe my mom just didn't watch it. But I remember that the there was essentially three different times that she watched the news, and it was in the morning at like six in the morning, maybe seven. Uh, and then when we got home at like maybe three o'clock, four o'clock, and then there was the evening news at mm-hmm. ten. Yeah. And part of the reason I remember that is because every single night they always always started with it's 10 o'clock do you know where your children are at yeah my buddy who's a generation older than me lived in uh, Stavanger Norway for a while and he they just even when we had already had at that point 24-hour news they were still on the three times a day and during meal time dinner time it was just there was a goldfish and a goldfish bowl that they would put it on and everybody ate their meal and um, wow. one night the big discussion was, oh, did you see the goldfish? Like, Tommy died. You know, he was, like, floating on the screen, <laughs> like, on it. That's and awesome. that's, that's their news. That's what they, and then, and I, I'm, it was a Dutch, news. and that's a well, really, like, Scandinavian country. Oh, I, more I, peaceful I, I, think. I, I thought of something. Um, so when I was, when, Casey, you said you wanted to talk about this, you sent us that video of uh, uh, Adam Burton. Yeah. yeah. Talking about generations, how they don't exist, specifically from a marketing point yeah. of view and all that. Um, and I'm kind of like, my knee-jerk reaction to most things is like, well, how can I be like, yeah, but you're missing this. Um, I thought about like how useful they can be sociologically and stuff, but then like, where do they actually come from? Because they're not real. We all, anyone can actually figure that out. But of course, they're not real. Yeah. Um, but then I started thinking, and maybe there's already thought out there. I didn't really read much sociological writing on generation, but it seemed to me like they're all very much tied to relation 
to technology and the major means of production throughout the ages, like, and that maybe is why generations seem to be jumping, like, now we want to subdivide all the generations oh, and yeah, stuff, and like they get more and more every year because yeah. technology, the yeah, the rate of change, like there is a bit about that. Yeah, so it seems like a huge correlation. There is a correlation, but it's more so. So the way that we define generations is essentially people who are born between this age and this age experience this for childhood and this for young adulthood. Right. So the reason that we're having this, like so many stereotypes for millennials now is because we don't really know about the full extent of the, the sociological and political trauma, so to speak, that millennials faced. The biggest thing we can think of is 9-11, which was a big thing for any millennial, whether yeah. it was... We you all know, remember it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was five, but I remember. Kind of remember. I mean, it's yeah. almost like what the what the Kennedy assassination was for. Right. Yeah, yeah, but you see, know? being thirty years old, I have three or four of those events in my head that are all equal. Yeah. So. But that's the thing. No, well, no tragedy is any worse than any other right. tragedy when it comes to a a cultural experience that happens. You know, uh, Lincoln being assassinated is no more or less tragic than JFK being assassinated. Right. The, the issue comes down to if we're experiencing more tragedies because that's generally what they use to describe generations, how they talk about them is like how generations look at or feel this because there's always subsets in generations. You're going right. to have the hippies with the baby boomers. You're right. going to have the, the people that came in with a perfect haircut that took, that, that took over daddy's business and <laughs> went off to do whatever. Right. But you're going to have everyone who's in between. You're gonna have those people who didn't like who didn't fit in with the hippies and didn't feel and didn't fit in with the cookie cutters, and then they went off and made punk, and that's what they did. That's what they went off and did. So right now we're still in a bit of a learning for generations because we haven't really talked about them in a sociological way for that long. Maybe sixty to eighty years we've been talking about them, but we really so, don't know much about. The, the groupings and why we so what made me think of that was you uh, like uh, also you at the beginning like you listed the first generation as the, the greatest, greatest generation yeah. what was before them I actually can't remember yeah, I know that there there is there is, is a they, yeah. there the is generations a basically come from industrialization right I mean, um well, we were talking about that or it tragic there's, or, there's well, yeah but I mean like before industrial um, the industrial world, you have generations, you have like eras, yeah, yes. ages, yeah, well, ages, ages and eras, yeah. yeah. Well, um, they did have generations. We just don't. We, yeah, I think we, we still have ages, we just haven't reached the next right. plateau yet. Yeah. Okay, um, okay. So, within, so you think within the Victorian age, they name it afterwards, generationally? So the thing with generations is they were kind of always a thing. We just didn't think of them actively until the Industrial Revolution really kicked off. Mm. Well, well. Here's the thing you have to think of: what was the age expect? What was the life expectancy of someone in the 1600s? Did you make it to 20? Don't even have to go back that far. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whether it, how, depending on how far you want to go back, like right. life expectancy yeah. is barely a generation or two. Well, right. the thing is that, like, um, what I thought was interesting about the video that both of you guys was um, how when the generation was when Gen X was named essentially. And all the, the, like, hoopla that came after it and all the, like, you know, stories and articles and studies that were done based yeah. on that, that became a thing that more people wanted to do. 
before that, there was no major incentive to be like, oh, we're going to group these people together and figure out why they're like this. And so that was more of a drive than it was, in, in my mind, than a scientific purpose. They're like, oh, this is really popular. I can get like not only funding for research, but I can get funding, I can get money based on books I write, and, and people will pay me to speak about this generation because apparently I know because I named it. And it became more of a thing, and, now, and, and then that kind of led more to the scientific kind of looking at it. That, that's like the weird thing, though, is we, the only reason that generations have become so important recently, at least in the past hundred years, is because we, yeah, he does have to go in a minute, okay. so I'll suck him off, but, but it mostly comes down to, we finally live in a world where we can live with more than just our generation and the generation before us. We're not experiencing. Oh, oh gotcha. Yeah. We're, we're not. Make a really good point we're not that. experiencing the '60s through a book that someone who died 50 years ago wrote. We're experiencing right. it through our grandparents. We're experiencing it through our parents. We're experiencing it through television. We're experiencing it in so many ways that previous eras never got to. The best, the, the closest right. thing that we have to understand ancient Greece are the ten historians that we talk about. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Like, that's about yeah, it. Yeah, there's there more were... intergenerational context. And there's exactly. a lot more information going around about yeah. it. And the thing is that, like, just kind of bothered me about the way that we discuss certain generations, especially the millennials, is that we're, we look at, like, you know, the um, generations before based on, like, economics and a lot of other things like that. We look at the millennials, oh, you know, they're killing grocery stores. You can't afford to buy groceries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're killing this industry. They can, and then you look at it from the standpoint that, like, from an economic standpoint, the people that are making a lot of those assertions are, for the most part, like you see those articles in like Forbes and stuff like that, and you're like, economically, you should understand right. that why this happened. Number one and number two, it should be like a thing that is praised in a free market economy. If we don't spend, if this business is not doing good enough to like court our business and we don't spend money there and it fails, that's a freaking, you know, capitalist wet dream right there. That's the way the system should work. Question before I leave though. Um, they're smart people. So they know that there's every action is, in a, is a result of a previous action, but they're choosing not to tell people. Or they're choosing not to focus on it. And that's the point right, of marketing right. in a lot of cases. Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay, I gotta step out. It was wonderful. Thank you for having me. Of course, you guys are wonderful. Love to have you again. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> I guess I see what you're saying, Zach, but I think I still disagree with you. Um, I see generations not really existing for large periods of human life. Um, I think. Uh, like to say parents to children are very similar or were very similar and didn't see themselves that differently for hundreds and hundreds of years at a time. Um, well, like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that they didn't. I'm just saying that if, well, if you we're said, living in a world where you're only experiencing one previous generation above you, you're going to see more similarities than differences simply because when you're talking with your parents... Like, are your parents more uh, baby boomers or uh, Gen Xers? Because mine is I was raised by baby boomers. boomers. Okay. Boomers, yeah. So, 
there is this weird thing that we have, and it's when you're talking with your parents, while they might have different political ideas or extremely similar political ideas or different economic ideas or whatever it is, you still kind of talk with them as if they're people, like they're not these well, foreign objects and bodies. But when we talk about or think about baby boomers in an abstract, you then have to deal with this weird struggle of, well, I'm not a baby boomer, so all I really have to go on is what baby boomers tell me and what baby boomers think from what they've told me, which is much closer when you're talking, just you and I talking, but it gets much more difficult once you know you have more generations out there because they start to feel more and more foreign, at least to me, because the difference between my generation, the, the millennial generation and Gen X, isn't too far. It really isn't. We've experienced a lot of the same things. We were both considered to be outcasts. We were both, like, there, there's a lot of similarities yeah, between millennials them. Millennials, in a lot of ways, are, like, just the logical conclusion of the sociological trends Gen Xers were already on. Yes. Of being alienated with power structures and whatnot and then yeah the free yeah. marketing all that we talked about and from that we can see how similar we are really gen x and the baby boomers are so different only if you're viewing them in their modern or what we view as what the modern conclusion is as they've grown up and become adults when you really look at them from when both the baby boomers and gen x were young Really, from an abstract sense, the 60s were some of the most politically liberal and progressive points when it came to protesting. And if I remember correctly, the 1960s were the first time since, like, probably the 20s where protest music was a radio thing. That yeah. you actually had hits that well, were just course. songs because of that. to prison before that. Yeah. And, and for the, real. Like, no, for yeah. real, yeah. And the thing from that is... If Gen X can look at the baby boomers from the lens of the hippie movement and the anti-war movement and the, uh, the Black Panther movement and all of those big progressive political movements that were trying to disrupt what was the authority, the man, just as the Gen Xers feel disenfranchised by the same man, the same system that's in, in front of them, they're going to see more similarities than differences. But if you compare the millennials to the baby boomers, really there's a bit of a difference because while millennials are more politically active now, when you really think about it, they aren't any more or less politically active than the boomers or the Gen Xers. They just have different ideas. And the reason that we're having this struggle right now still with race and sexism, all these weird things that have seemingly from the appearance of baby boomers come out of nowhere have been shit we've been talking about for so long well yeah i don't know i definitely think there's been a huge maybe politically active is too broad of a term because we went from politically aware aware what yeah e even that i think because like the the boomers that were politically aware or active however you want to phrase that were fighting in political engagement, where since the uh, 90s we shift to identity and culture as if that's the main road for change rather than the political and economic. Um, so it's a huge difference in where they're focusing that energy. And I think that gets a lot of uh, rightful flat towards the millennials and uh, that they've disengaged with a lot of 
things of power um, and like ways to affect actual change. And I think that comes a lot from like you see uh, how Gen Xers were treated in the 90s and stuff. Um, their characterization is that they're apathetic and nihilistic and grungy. You know, they they uh, they're not fighting the system to change to change the system. They're saying, ah, it fucking sucks. The world is fuck, you know? And we, well, we have a resurgence of that a little bit. A now, little bit. I, I think the answer to that and why it seems like millennials are fighting politically in such different ways or don't feel like they're fighting politically in comparison to other generations is because when you really think about it, the boomers, when it came to protesting... Outside of the labor unions of the 1900s, specifically the, the, the teens and the 20s, going into, you know, maybe a bit of the women's suffrage movement, you really didn't have much in the, the vein of sticking it to the man. People were fairly complacent after the Civil War about the political system. And for about oh, a hundred... the labor movement was strong, though. And it had was. a lot of people in it. It was, but they were a part of the greatest generation, and they were the ones that were making America what we understand America as today. Yeah, yeah. And while they did do stuff politically, the greatest generation is not known for its labor unions, is not known for the union force, is not really known for women's suffrage. They are known for pushing the economic virtues of industrialization. Yeah, the boomers. But isn't that a lot? Doesn't that a lot have to do with like how we write history? Because while they're not known for their like their the strong labor stance historically, we know as it we had labor like organized labor um, had huge impacts on history. Like the New Deal happened because people protested. They were like out there demanding. But were the boomers it. unaware of it? Were they unaware? No, they knew it. They knew. And yeah, they, they used, were a lot of them were actively participating, but and historically they we don't remember them. No, I know that. What I'm saying though is so Oh, if, I messed that up, I'm sorry. Oh no, that's fine. I conflated boomers and greats. Oh, okay. So my reasoning for that and why it's a bit different is because if you look at the boomers who were taking in the 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 proactive political side of the greatest generation, they actively saw that it worked. They had True. grandparents and great-grandparents who might have been in unions and benefited from it and had, around the dinner table, would talk about it. Right. And that might have fueled some of that protesting because it'll work this time. It'll work this time. Yeah. But outside of marginal success, comparatively, at least with the hippie movement specifically, well, the we did. fucking sold out. They That's did. Why no one believes in them. Well, I know, but when you think of it like this, they they sold out. They really didn't achieve their one love thing because really, I don't remember there being any big hippie concerts about fucking Stonewall. I don't remember any of that. No. I don't remember there being an active political force once the hippies realized we just want to smoke weed. But there is a political section of the boomers who were those that were fighting with fucking MLK and Malcolm X and yeah. actively oh, yeah, trying yeah. to make a change that were fueled the by those unions. Protests, yeah. Yeah. They they, they were, combined the social from like the hippies, they took a little bit of that, but then they combined it with their previous generations, uh, labor unions, with the fight for racial equality, sexual equality, now, anti war. Yeah. That was probably the strongest. Yeah. But uh, now let's take that and look at it as 
the boomers knew that that was a tactic that worked because they they experienced it yeah. either themselves or through their parents. Yeah. It was in their lifetime at least. Maybe they were kids, but they remember seeing something on TV about labor unions and right. you know kids not having to go to work. They heard their grandparents. Or the difference between 1950 and 1970 culture yeah. is so apparent. It is. My thing is, the reason I think that millennials and even the younger Gen Xers believe and push more for this political pressure outside of, you know, large demonstrations and, you know, using inflammatory political practices, we still have that with um, Black Lives Matter or um, any of the other demonstrations that involve... Uh, the, the, the mass walks that in like the slut walks sorry that's what I was trying to find the word for um, and all of those being demonstrations yes but they don't disrupt and the reason I think that is because can you really think of a large scale protest that has actively changed politics since the millennials have existed because I can't think of any I can't think of any well, large scale protest that changed policy yeah and there's a big reason for that too to go and to get political with it. It's like the people doing direct action in the '60s, like the civil rights movement, that was direct action on a very violent scale. Like, and I don't mean like they were hurting people, but their ideas were directly contradictory to the system as a whole. Like, they were saying, "No, we're people. Like, absolutely, a hundred percent as equal as you." Your system is built on inequality. Your system must be dismantled. Whereas now in the 90s and stuff, the parade, like what we're talking about, the women's march and stuff, is very powerful and beautiful to see that many people out there. It's a permitted protest. It's not a direct action. It's not challenging the actual functioning of the system. Oh, I agree you with can't, you. Yeah, like, that's what we do, though, now. That's, it's a, it's a, it's spectacle. a spectacle. Yeah, yeah. it's... Well, we got permission, and now we can voice our dissent, and it's an act of expression, but it's not putting your bodies in the gears of the machine. Yeah. Like, I agree with you there. I just think that the reason the tactics have changed is because millennials don't have an, an active example of, hey, yeah. this direct action created this policy, and this it, it hasn't happened in no. our lifetime yet. And when... Gen X did get political, and they did, it was either extremely violent or it was completely apathetic and they didn't care. When they actually got direct about it, trying to make things happen, people ignored them because they thought it was ridiculous. Whether it be the, um, the, the 1970s HIV crisis where you have all of these Gen, X, uh, Gen Xers who are going out in the streets protesting HIV and wanting the fucking president to admit that HIV is a thing that exists as the president Well, that is... would be late boomers, though, right? No. Because I the thought H Gen Xers were born in the 70s. But Reagan and his suppression... Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reagan and the suppression, when it got really bad, because we didn't know that HIV was a thing until the late 70s. Right, right, right. When it came to um, the student protesters, those who would be um, seniors in high school and going into college when that movement was getting very strong, that would be about 86, 87, if I remember that correctly. Okay. Um, but the Gen Xers were ignored. Yeah. They were completely ignored. No one believed so, them until oh, it was yeah. too late. 
that was the biggest political thing to happen out of Generation X. And if you really think about it, a lot of the Gen Xers who were excited about Bernie, when they reacted to Bernie not getting the nomination politically, it was apathetic, as you would assume or stereotypically believe a Gen Xer do. It's, that fucking sucks. Eh, fucking system's stupid anyway. Fuck it. But millennials were like, what? No, we have to fight this. We have to fight this hard, even though there was nothing that yeah, we yeah. could do. No, very Absolutely true. Absolutely nothing. But there millennials was... were like, but it was rigged. And Gen Xers were like, yeah, that's the system. But, but that's the thing, is Gen Xers and millennials are more similar than they are different. Right, right. While millennials and boomers from age range Y are very similar, as they've gotten older, there's been distance created. And I think that the reason millennials have resorted to the tactics they have with this resurgence in nonviolent protest, this new way of shaming people, of, you know, taking racists and instead of beating the shit out of them, like some some of the skinhead punks, the anti-racist skinhead yes. punks of the 80s and 90s would just beat the shit out of them and then they'd be out beating up uh, a Mexican or a black person the very next day you now have this experience of, you know, shaming someone publicly on the internet where everyone can see it, and not just your town. You can't just, someone finds out you're a racist and then go to Wyoming and no one knows. Yeah, but then it gets the ugly side of it, too, where everything is considered bad and people are... Oh, no, I... Yeah, no, I I know that's not... I, I get that, and there is a bit of shame in it, but when you really think about that, that kind of only exists because of the 24-hour news cycle, which, you know, the boomers ate up, and now the boomers are complaining about. Because if it wasn't for, I mean, in my opinion, I would say the first case I can think of of public shunning on, like, a national playing field would be the detective from the O.J. Simpson case that uh, used all of those racial epithets. Yeah. I forget his name. It was uh, but, Mark I, mean, I, think, I think to a certain extent, we have to look at the... Things have changed. The way that the system that we've been fighting for however long has done things has evolved. Yeah. We, as the people that are fighting that system, have not. They have gotten smarter with dealing with us, and we haven't gotten smarter with dealing with them. You look at it from the standpoint that, like, you have all this information going around. And we, uh, it's it's very interesting because I've been investigating, looking into this for a little while. This whole like the media is super liberal. And then you're like you're looking at all of super the different corporate. aspects of the media, and like you have like a newspaper and a bunch of TV stations that's owned by like a weapons company, and they're like. Do you think they really care about a liberal agenda? Not really. They don't give a crap. They want to sell newspapers or like sell ads. So at the end of the day, it's like you have this idea that these organizations, and I'm like, you know, most conservatives are like, oh, the media is super liberal. And then you have a lot of liberals are like, oh, the media is kind of on our side. No, they're part of the corporate monster that... They're apathetic to your politics. They care about the money that you exactly. get. Exactly. Yeah. They don't give a crap about the politics. So this idea, and they won't let you say anything that's counter their core existence, like the military-industrial complex. complex. Yeah, I mean, like, like so they don't talk about the truly important things, but they give you just enough that you think that it's okay. We have just enough, so it's not really that painful. So we don't ever get to the point where we're just like, 
you know what, we're, we need to go out in the streets and march. The poorest of people that have to deal with all the garbage are the ones that are at the point where, you know, they might go protest, but there's not enough of them that it would really make a difference. You know, back in, you know, the 60s, there's enough people feeling these feelings and having this pain that uh, most of them took to the streets. Yeah. We're stratified now. But the, the thing with that is, again, I think that's where the issue comes in, where we have this generational divide that has been seemingly getting bigger and bigger. Because, I mean, I'm friends with some boomers who talk about their their times in the 60s protesting Vietnam and, you know, chaining themselves to a tree oh, or yeah. wh whatever that is. But when it comes to... It, it is, like, the fact that they actively fought something. But then I continually read all of these bullshit articles about how baby boomers are feeling very alienated by millennials. It's like, n no, you're just not talking to all millennials or all boomers, and you're resorting to stereotypes. Because just like in the 60s where you had this, this small niche population of hippies, you also still had a clean-cut guy who, you know, still went to work and was very wealthy and didn't give a shit about politics and just wanted to go to work and do his thing. Just as you had those who were good people yeah. in the 60s who and just you know, didn't get politically active. What's funny, too, is, like, retroactivity and stuff, how the image that people think of as the 60s hippie is probably closer the, to the mid-70s yeah. fashion and stuff, you know, like, <laughs> um, just, like, when you think about the beat writers and stuff, you know, the weirdos from before, before the pre-hippie weirdos, um, we think of them as, like, a late 50s thing, but those people were doing all that shit in the late 40s, um, yeah. you know, we always kind of transpose an image that's not quite there. Either. I think part of that just comes down to how, in general, the outside world is always late to the party when it comes to subculture. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So by the time we experience it, we're a bit late. Like, nearly all of our pop culture involving the hippie movement is from the last three years. Specifically right. Woodstock, which happened in 69. Yeah. 69. Yeah. And that's our, our version of the hippies in their heyday. No, they were dying. Yeah, <laughs> they were they were slowly dying out and being replaced. Also, I had another thing I wanted to say about these uh, Gen Xers being ignored and stuff. Made me think too because I don't know how, but I forgot about it for a second. Can't not mention the World Trade protest in uh, Seattle in the late nineties, ninety nine. Like that's true. I was three. I apologize. Well, no, I no, no, I no. I, yeah. I was a little kid too. But that's the thing is, it was completely dismissed and ignored. They were crazy, violent anarchists that did a bunch of weird shit for some reason that no one knows, right? Like, but it was powerful. It was like the one of the biggest protests in America, and they did a lot of stuff. It was, I mean, people look it up if you don't know what we're talking about. The WTO protest yeah, in '99. I've never There's heard. Yeah, really, really no cool clue. stuff happened. Um, it's like the seeds for what Occupy happened, but it was like the Gen X version, you know. Um, huh. And they were protesting the World Trade Organization starting, um, and like hundreds of thousands of people out in Seattle and stuff, almost completely ignored by the media except for random instances of property damage. Um, and then yeah, now that really yeah nowadays when we talk about stuff like that doesn't even come up when you mention '90s history when it should be huge like 
in uh, the 60s when, like, yeah, each one of those protests, like, are considered huge, momentous things, and what that's, that's nothing. It's buried. No what I think we need it. to, like, go back and look at is, like, at what point did what we know as the corporate media start actually, like, taking hold in what we saw and what CNN. we experienced. You know, I, like, I tell you right now, it was and, CNN. And so, like, if you look at kind of, like, the origins of that, you'll, I think you'll kind of see when things like that start stop having problems. Well, you know, when, like, huge, huge, like, like things that were in the 60s, 40s, like, were world-changing events. Yeah. No longer Well, again, when, when it comes to what the 90s are defined as, and this is one of the topics I want to do, hopefully eventually get to, I'm glad that we did, is, so, of course, we've all seen the million and a half different BuzzFeed and Upworthy articles. If you're a 90s about kid, 90s kids. <laughs> Only two and 90s kids. The, the weird thing is I've learned that outside of the, oh, 90s kids, when we talk about cartoons, video games, movies, outside of all of that, when it comes to historical events of the 90s, the older generation will talk about them, but... I think that's part of where this generation, the millennials generation, maybe even the generation after us, is stemming from the cynicism is coming from the fact that every major event I can think of for the 90s was a huge joke. A yeah. huge joke. It was an ironic one of, time. Yeah, one of the biggest things Simple. that happened in the I 90s would be the OJ case. Where you had it was a huge joke, yeah. It was a huge joke, yeah. But on top of that, you have not just the actual, you know, circus parts of it. The the spectacle of um, God. I was just watching something about this earlier. What's his Johnny Cochran and uh, and Marcy going back and forth doing political stunts essentially constantly with you know the the speculation of jurors being dismissed for bullshit made up reasons but outside of that when I was watching the People vs. OJ Netflix little biopic thing one of the things I did was look up one of the scenes that stuck with me and it was a, I believe it was an SNL skit where they were making fun of Judge Ico someone who was just doing his normal job just making sure that it didn't go anywhere but they were making jokes about him it was a serious case like not just like OJ stole two a people puppy. died. Yeah, you know, two people were dead. Murdered. OJ didn't accidentally like step on a puppy. He didn't, you know, steal someone else's Heisman. He did that thirty years later. <laughs> um, well, not thirty, twenty. No, yeah, twenty. Um, so it to me just shows that maybe the reason that we have this weird like post-truth, post-cynicism, but still cynically ironic world of the millennial stems from the apathy of the Gen Xers being mixed with this kind of the the burnt out candle of the revolutionary part of the, the baby boomers. Because oh, now, yeah. when you think about it, I don't know many baby boomers who are still out there being politically active. They exist. They definitely exist. Don't get me wrong. But when it comes to what we what we would think of for those who would still be out there a lot of a lot of the revolutionaries from the 60s have quote unquote retired they're not out there fighting the good fight anymore and if they are they're doing it they're in ways yeah whether it's they're a broken record doing the same thing over and over again or they're trying to you know beat the system from inside the system and then don't understand the issues of outside the system really the the 90s 
for its obsession with being as real as possible as you saw with the massive gangster rap movement. Extreme. Whether yeah, whether you have to deal with the the marketing campaigns of extreme, whether you have to deal with this <laughs> this resurgence of obsession with stupid sports that make no sense. Basketball. <laughs> I just I'm sorry, I just had this huge like flash of all the extremes in my head. Well, that was really we also popular. have to remember the nineties gave us high life. Wow, yeah, that was intense. So, <laughs> really, it's, it's as if, like, the 90s are broken up into two different sections. The really, really serious point of the 90s, where everything's super serious, and the extreme joke. And, yeah. for me, the only thing I can really add on to that is, I'm confused by why. Because as someone who only experienced the 90s for four very short years until I turned four in 2000, I know very little about the 90s when it comes to historical events that happen, whether it be political or otherwise, outside of, like, Ross Perot yeah. and very joked-about things, while I know a lot about what happened in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. A lot, historically. Uh, the other thing I think is interesting is that, like, being I'm 33 years old, and being someone that, like, experienced a lot of the 90s most of the things that you're saying like how a lot of it was a joke all the important things that happened for me were just like kind of like a joke like you know like the OJ said like the, all those things were like that's that's ridiculous and then most of the things I can really remember were like things I'm now nostalgic about you know like Nintendo and you know like there's a lot of like TV shows and I'm like oh you know like Double Dare and Gak and all that stuff I have oh, I Legends remember, of the Hidden Temple. The, 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 like all those There's things, a movie now. I remember fondly. Yes. Power Rangers. I remember all those things yeah. fondly. So I think I that all the important things I remember as a joke. And all the other things I remember really fondly. So I think that has a lot to do with why you know we're so nostalgic. I don't know. I agree with you completely. The 90s taught me the world was a lie. Growing up in the well, 90s, the lesson I learned was... Reality and power structures are a fucking joke, and you're being lied to. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and I honestly, my cynical view well, of it. honestly, I think part of that is when you think about the the very late boomers and the early Gen Xers that grew up to be comedy writers and those who might be newscasters. A big event from their childhood or their young adult life is finding out that the President of the United States was trying to conspire and yeah. win with Nixon. True. And I think that part of that woke a lot of people up and then also caused this infinite struggle of the pendulum going back and forth between, you know, extreme comedy for serious moments and serious moments for comedic purposes. And I think that somewhere along the lines, it just stopped in the middle. And we're now living in this weird, extremely nostalgic period that wants to remember everything good about the 80s and 90s, but also being unwilling to learn from the bad that happened from the 90s. I think that's a really, really poignant and good place to end today. I think right, we could right. talk I about this an I got an idea for a little round table, and it's very quick. What would you call, if you could name today's generation... Today's generation starts in two thousands. For anyone who wants to disagree with me, we got three more Zach. years. If I could name them, yeah, 
Oh, they're the odds. God damn it, that's what I think too. I, I agree with you. I don't even know how I would name it. I mean, like uh, the the social media generation. I don't know. That doesn't really roll off the tongue. No, but... that's such a marketing gimmick, Casey. Dude. Wait. wait <laughs> All right. I don't know. Generation SM. Oh, dude. SMS. Generation SM. SMS. <laughs> you stole All it. All right. We're across the aisle to show that never gets political. I'm Adam. <laughs> I'm Zach. And I'm Casey. See you guys next week.